Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And leaders and leadership is the topic of today's discussion. Mozart Gurrier, the executive director from 21 Progress, joins me today. 21 Progress is an organization that provides programs that enhance leadership development among the hardworking people of Washington. Mozart, welcome and thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad to have you because I want to talk about leadership and development and young people People turning into adults and, you know, taking over so I can take a rest. Uh, you know, I gave 21 Progress a quick description there, but uh, a big part of what we're talking about is how society defines what a leader is, right? So before we dive deeper into what 21 Progress does, a few basics. Um, 21, you're a nonprofit? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We're a nonprofit. And how long has 21 Progress been around? And Yeah, so so we kind of, you know, thought of the ideal in 2011 and then um, started programs in 2012. So we're still fairly young as an organization. And serving just Seattle? I said Washington. You serve statewide? Is it a county? Just where, yeah, where are we talking sure. about? Yeah, for sure. So, so um, we focus um, our work in serving folks that live from Tacoma to Everett. So um, that that span is really where we spend a lot of our time. Okay, so for the most part, Puget Sound area. Exactly. Greater Puget Sound. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. And... Uh, I guess now let me get to the the story. What's the story behind it? Was there why did it the why? Was there something specific about I don't know the people who had this grand idea? What was there something lacking? You know that was the impetus for Twenty One Progress to get started with all the variety of programs you do to help young people in sort of disadvantaged places and you know well. Go ahead. I'll, yeah. <laughs> a sort of open-ended question. Answer any part of it you want, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate the question. Um, and, uh, and you know, um, from the kind of idea that we started from, we haven't changed very much and um, because I think um, the challenge is so prevalent. So in, um, in 2011, um, UFCW 21, um, which is a local labor union, um, statewide, 45,000 members, um, they had received access to a certain number of resources because they had sold the building. It was a public building. Um, and because they had done that, um, regulations and a number of other factors required that um, those resources be used for public benefit. Mm. Um, and so they decided to start an organization. Um, but before they did that, they wanted to reach out to uh, community stakeholders, um, elected officials, um, um, economic justice activists, immigration activists, racial justice activists, in terms of what was missing, right, in a, in a city like Seattle that has so many phenomenal nonprofits that are working to make a difference and um, really incredible elected officials that set the standard, you know, um, across the region and across the country, you know, what was missing and how could we do the most good with those resources? Um, and something that came back um, kind of related to your quip a, a bit earlier um, was that folks were really concerned about, you know, um, baby boomers retiring and, mm -hmm. you know, what exactly was going to happen with all these institutions um, that this generation of folks um, had sustained and maintained and led for a long period of time, right? Um, and so that was the first element. And the second element was um, this broader question of, um, when we thought, think about civic engagement or when we think about the issues that we care about, um, how do we involve not simply the folks who um, got a political science major in college <laughs> um, and dream of interning for a congressperson and, you know, their first job is working on an electoral campaign, 
But how do we engage, you know, the grocery worker um, who works 40 hours a week, who goes home and meets their children, who wants access to a good life, who believes in justice, who wants access to public education, um, who doesn't um, perhaps maybe wants to go on to school or perhaps wants to continue to kind of work in the work environment they're working in now. How do we bring that person to the table and make sure that when we say the word leader, that we're also involving um, workers, everyday folks, um, folks that um, don't necessarily aspire to be the CEO and, and be in front of the Puget Sound Business Journal? Um, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, because that was like a more broader question, especially for um, both um, this organization that started 21 Progress, but also for, um, you know, many of the activists and leaders that we were speaking to, right? It was like we kept going to like the same people. And if you go to many political spaces or um, activist spaces. It's the same people yeah, every time, right? right? And the, so the, there's a handful of people that seem to volunteer to be all head that committee, all exactly, run that. And, exactly. And then their point of view is the one that always is on the agenda. Exactly. Regardless, it may be a good point of view and want to do right things, but like you're kind of saying, that leaves a lot of voices out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of what the life, the community, mm. society could be. Yeah. So we're talking a new paradigm of what you just say, decide is or define as a leader. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's like, um, and the thought experiment that I ask folks to think of is like, you know, um, how did you learn how to become a leader? Right. Um, like very specifically, you know, um, becoming a leader or developing as a leader is not part of the common core. You know, if you go to the best university um, in in the world, right? Um, it is not a core element of you graduating from that university um, to um, check a box that you've developed as a leader, you know? Right. Um, and, so, and, and so it's almost contradictory um, that in our society as a whole um, that we spend such little time on the folks who actually impact our day-to-day -day life on a consistent basis. Um, and that right now, like another, you know, thought experiment or, or something that I like to in invite folks to consider um, is that right now, you know, um, in sixth grade, um, our future president is in a sixth grade classroom, right? Um, 50, you know, 60, I don't know how long from now. Right. But they're in a the classroom right now. Um, yeah, there's a 12-year-old somewhere yeah. that's going to be the president one day. <laughs> there is. Right. There is, right? Like, Presidents are twelve. They, they at are, one point, they start one, out twelve. At one point, they start out twelve, and and I I think we don't consider that, and we don't take that very seriously. We don't take very seriously that right now, you know, my 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 son's in kindergarten, um, and that one of his classmates, um, or him himself, um, will be the superintendent of 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 that school, will be the principal, um, will be the teacher, um, and that um, we teach young folks how to read, um, we teach them, um. How to be good at math. Um, we even teach them how to be very skilled, right? How to make sure if they're diagnosing a problem, how to be accurate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you definitely want to make sure that our doctors are well trained and that our lawyers can make a good argument. Um, but when it comes to this topic of leadership, um, it seems that it's absolutely absent um, from a government um, and a society that says it values democracy. Right. And, and what ends up happening um, is that you actually only get 
the people who have always led showing up in all the places and, and taking up all that space, both because they might have good intentions and oftentimes do, um, but also because we're not taking seriously how do we actually expand, you know, our definition of leadership? How do we expand who sits at the tables and how do we invite people to actively engage in our democracy, um, not simply as voters, but really as a way of being, right? Um, and so whether that way of being is being neighborly or whether that way of being is um, advocating um, towards, you know, the elected officials that you've supported and letting them know what you care about, um, I think that's um, very important. Um, and I'll, I'll close I'll close this thought with this, right? Like, um, a lot of folks have been putting up these maps of, you know, um, who voted for what person and and why this why this politician voted in our recent you know presidential election and our congressional and house races yeah um and one of the gifts or memes that i've i've really you know been thinking critically about is that the the majority of folks in america um who were eligible to vote um didn't vote um and i would argue not that you know america somehow you know that these people don't care um, or that they're disinterested, I would actually argue that they were never invited. Um, they were never invited to, to, to be part of our democracy in a very meaningful way. Um, and I think, I think that's something that we don't um, really take into consideration in a very deep and dramatic way. In yeah. You, dramatic you're, way. You're talking about democracy, meaning all these different voices are at the table sharing their ideas and listening to each other. Listening is one of those skills that you're talking about mm-hmm. needs to be taught uh, as well as how to add two plus two. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where problem solving comes from. And then when you solve a problem, you, you look around and go, hey, we've done something ourselves. We we are leading ourselves. I mean, what's the kind of grassroots leadership? Can you give us some examples of what or maybe some... Uh, yeah, I guess examples is the right word. Yeah. Here's, a, here's what this looks like if I were to point it out for it. Maybe it's around us in smaller examples and we don't notice it. W- what is this kind of leader in the neighborhood going that we haven't stopped to say, oh, this guy should be talking. We should all be talking like this guy. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. That's that. That's that's really um, really great point. And so an example that, you know, I like to share is, um, you know, dear emerging leader that we met um, about a year and a half ago. Her name's Maria. Um, and Maria, um, due to um, circumstances outside of her control, her parents um, came to this country to find a better life. They were working, um, you know, um, working class jobs, um, and they were deported from this country. And so Maria, as a teenager, um, had the responsibility to raise herself, right? Um, literally, right? And, yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, really at the cusp of turning 18 and so really not even having access to, you know, foster care. So as a minor, as she's got no real rights, but then she's uh, not quite an adult. She can't make legal decisions. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, and so Maria, right, is, um, you know, working very hard at a sandwich shop and, you know, she's making ends meet and, and doing all these things. And, um, you know, she really aspires to go to college. Well, she, she, she sends us a note. Um, she's an she's immigrant student, and we send out a bulletin to, you know, um, all the young people that we encounter, high school students, college students, you know, folks just fresh out of college, you know, letting them know about um, leadership opportunities, advocacy opportunities, whether it's internships or otherwise. And so we sent a note to shadow um, an elected official in Olympia. 
Um, and Maria sends us an email back and says um, something to an effect of, am I even allowed to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to, you know, go into um, this building, which if we're clear, right, like that building, you know, um, you know, I respect the office of the governor and the elected officials there, right? That building belongs to the people of Washington, right? Um, fundamentally, you know, like all government belongs to the people of Washington if we live in a democracy. And she was even worried that she wasn't even allowed to walk in the building? Right, uh, um, and be part of this program, right? And so we sent her a message back. We were very fortunate that, you know, we knew um, some of the elected officials that were offering shadowing program. And so she got this opportunity to shadow. And um, also, you know, learn more about internship opportunities, how a bill is made, all these, you know, core pieces of um, public policy and, you know, governance. Um, A few days later, you know, um, Maria says it was an incredible experience. She learned a whole bunch. Um, She's ready to get more engaged and more involved and, and participate and go from there. At the same time, she's a student at Tacoma Community College. And, um, you know, she's noticing that as a um, as a Latino student, Latina student um, on that campus, um, that there isn't a significant number of extracurricular programs available to students who identify as her. And so she starts to think in her mind after she starts to visit campuses at University of Washington and Seattle University, um, that what would it look like to create space for people who look like me, who are trying to figure out what it means to be in college, um, not be act, perhaps be activists, but more so like what would it look like to create that space? Um, and so she starts thinking about creating that space and talking to an advisor and begins to dream and imagine what it, what it would mean to actually create the same space and opportunity that we attempted to create th- for her through a newsletter, right? Um, a few weeks later, we had opportunity to create a program called Seattle Selma, where 20 young people um, from across the region, I'm talking, you know, Bellevue High School to um, Lincoln High School in Tacoma to young folks at Rainer Beach, really a diverse segment of young people from private, public, um, and everything in between, um, to go to the Deep South, um, walk in the footsteps of civil rights leaders, um, and really deeply experience, you know, what it means, you know, for everyday people uh, to come together and to ask for change. Maria is part of that cohort. And through being a part of that cohort, um, she realizes and experiences um, that, yes, you know, her identity as a woman, as Latina matters, but then also that these struggles of, you know, black folks in the deep south and black folks even now are also deeply connected to also her experience. Right. And so she's deepening her analysis of what it means to be human, what it means to be in the United States of America and what it means to actually serve and work with other folks, you know. Um, and so she's developing these relationships. It's really fantastic. Um, and then there's a congressional race where a woman of color is running for Congress, um, you know, in the Seattle area. And Maria has heard this person speak. And she's just like, wow, like this is really incredible. And decides to participate in that election as an intern. Is super nervous about mm-hmm. putting in her application. And so all of a sudden, a person who was working in a sandwich shop, um, who in a lot of ways was moving through life, Um, through relationships and alone um, is helping to elect, right, the first Indian American woman in the United States. And so we had nothing to do with her, you know, getting that internship or deciding to work on a political campaign. Um, But I think um, her story is indicative of what it looks like when we invite folks into conversations, um, regardless of, um, you know, their educational background or otherwise, and what they decide to do 
with that insight. What they decide to do um, once they um, realize that in their heart of hearts that they want to make a difference, that they want to invest in other people, that they want to connect the issues they care about to issues other people care about, and that they fundamentally, right, like they want to build a better community. Um, and I think that's really what it's all about. So you just said a few phrases. Someone who wants to make a difference, someone who uh, wants to make a difference in their community, that's a leader mm-hmm. and who puts something into action and, and steps forward and says, let's do this, let's yeah. do that. All of a sudden, hey, that's what a leader is. Yeah. And before that, we would have thought of, well, that's just a teen, undocumented teenager making sandwiches. Yeah. And she is as much a leader as anyone else can be because yeah. she can make a difference. Yeah, for sure. For wow. sure. For sure. And I, I just want to follow that point that you just made. Um, not only, I think, is Maria an incredible leader and you know um folks will oftentimes ask me well mozart you know um you know that's that's an anecdote you know like okay so she worked on that but you know so last year we encountered 5000 folks um you know who were interested and passionate about developing as leaders right young folks who who want to to make a difference you know um whether you're talking about elections or whether you're talking about education or poverty or things like that, 5,000 folks are significant. And I guess I guess to kind of close this thought, I, I, what I want to say is, is that um, more than being a leader herself, what has really inspired me about Maria's story and who she is and, and why I think she's just so powerful um, is that she's deeply invested in developing more leaders, um, is that, that for her this title or this role or her acts of service are not rooted in her ability to be above other people. Like, um, it is grounded in this notion of developing other people who will walk alongside her and even maybe go beyond whatever, you know, milestones that she's achieved. And so I also want to ground, like, this definition of leadership that that great leaders develop more leaders. Yeah, so she's interested in developing the community, not just herself being bigger, but seeing that where she lives and what she participates in is bigger and better. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Yeah, we are talking this morning with Mozart Gurrier. He is the executive director of 21 Progress, 21 Progress through popular education, civic engagement, uh, assists emerging leaders, especially young adults and immigrants, to claim their place in building a more just society and reaching their dream. We can uh, give out some contact information. People are probably interested now. What are they talking about? 21 Progress. Yeah, so online, right? Yeah, for sure. Online is just spelled out with the numerals 2121 and then the word progress, 21progress.org. Or they can give you a call. Yeah, for sure. uh, 206-829-8382. Is that right? Okay, I'll give that again because people just went and grabbed a pencil. 206-829-8382 or online, 21progress.org. And you mentioned Maria and her plight, I guess, as uh, the child of undocumented immigrants. Um, tell us a little bit, if you can, about uh, Build Your Dream. This is another program you guys have, yeah, right? And for this sure. sort of addresses people in her state, right? Yeah, for sure. So Build Your Dream is um, is a um, leadership development program that supports undocumented young folks um, and assists them in both attaining their um, um, professional goals, their career goals, their educational goals, um, and also providing them with the tools to advocate for human rights of um, all immigrants, all undocumented folks, and then um, connecting that to our core body of work, which is developing young folks who are committed to justice and who are um, committed to being ethical leaders. Um, It was um, 
basically we've worked with about uh, uh, 300 uh, young people throughout the Puget Sound as far as Yakima um, and as as near as downtown Seattle, mm-hmm. right? Um, and um, um, President Obama in 2012, he created a program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Yeah, this is the DACA, if people heard that name. Yeah, for, yeah. Sh- for sure. Um, and Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, I just want to describe the program in full. Um, it allowed people, young folks um, who had come to the United States um, while they were teenagers um, to get access to a work permit. Um, so to be allowed to work in the United States um, and then also and also um, pursue uh, educational programs. So the state of Washington does have um, um, financial aid assistance to undocumented folks um, um, and then also um, um, not have to have the fear of deportation. Um, and, um, you know, the, the opportunity to like simply to live, right, to live and pursue those careers, specifically these young folks who had been in the United States for a great deal. Um, oftentimes yeah, their parents brought them without the, asking them, so we're, we're going. To. Yeah, for the, for, for the majority of their lives. Um, and, um, and so the program, what we do is, is, I think a key part when folks talk about immigration that they don't know is that there's a fee involved um, that um, folks have to pay um, $500 um, not including legal fees, almost $500, um, not including legal fees, um, to get access to this permit, right? Um, but the catch is, is that undocumented folks in the United States are not authorized to work. Um, and so, um, and so, particularly young folks, right? And so, if you just kind of imagine that, you know, a family, an immigrant family has even more than one child, and we know that um, income rates, right? Like, um, most most immigrant folks um, don't make more than you know thirty, forty thousand a year, especially um, especially if they don't have access to um, careers that pay them a fair wage. Um, that's going to be incredibly difficult, you know, to um, to both provide um, legal fees as well as anything else if someone has more than one child or more than one sibling, right? And so the Build Your Dream program creates a microloan very similar to Kiva, um, Kiva, where folks actually pay it back. They pay back every single dime, and and what I love to say is is we created this program, and we're not we're not loan agents, we're a nonprofit that develops leaders, right? And so we don't have any loan officers calling people back every single day and trying uh-huh. to like get the money back, right? And so we've lent out almost two hundred thousand dollars, and ninety eight percent of that money has all come back to serve more immigrant folks, which I think is like evidence, right? That um, not with without prompting that folks um, are deeply committed to like being in the United States to contributing to their society and investing back. And so um, I think that our program has um, like proven um, just like a key point of that this ha- wasn't a handout. It was actually a program that um, where the money that folks pay back then goes back to support other folks and then goes back to support other folks. So through microloans of just several hundred dollars not less than 500 bucks and how how long do you give them to pay that by this to help 10 months them? 10 months yeah and so uh, they're giving a 50 bucks back a month or something yeah 50 bucks back uh and helps them with their documentation and yeah it helps them pay for the it helps them pay for the permit um and then it allows them to pursue um um their careers um and their and um their educational goals 
Um, and then after they pursue their careers and educational goals, you know, we provide them with the opportunity um, to learn more about developing as leaders and developing more as advocates. Um, and then also like deepening and broadening the conversation around immigration for us to consider that um, perhaps, right, like that, um, um, that even the notion of like who deserves and who doesn't deserve to be in the United States um, is um, a very complicated question, yeah. um, especially when we consider that, you know, um, immigrant folks um, um, invest both their wisdom and their intellect and their culture and their resources, over a billion dollars of resources um, in investing in the United States. In, in, in the United States um, and even if we don't consider them as like a financial piece that if we if we look at you know um, most of the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley um, most of President Obama recently acknowledged some of the best teachers in the United States um, and a considerable percentage of those folks were immigrant students undocumented teachers who were serving our students and actually um, transforming communities by educating students regardless of their immigration status um, and so oftentimes I think folks minimize either like this financial contribution or this educational contribution and I really just want to emphasize this point um, that um, we should more so be talking about what country do we want to have instead of um, who should or shouldn't be in the United States mm. Well, you know, we're going to run out of time, Mo, before too long. I want to make sure you talk about some things coming up that young people sure. and people interested in uh, the equality you're talking about and having a voice and leadership. Uh, MLK Day is coming up and yeah. a lot of a uh, couple of things going on around town. Do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, for sure. So MLK Day, um, if, if folks type in um, Martin Luther King Day, Seattle, it's going to be a huge turnout and um, we're definitely expecting um we're planning on attending ourselves we're not involved in the coordination but we're really excited um about that event because we really think that's going to be an opportunity to see a whole bunch of folks mainly led by young people um advocating and um and really being fired up about how do we as people who live in this region of the country really support and listen to one another um and then on january 15th um um, Kids for Peace, as well as the Muslim Association for the Puget Sound, is ho hosting uh, uh, a youth advocacy event. Um, and I think that's a really powerful opportunity for folks. If you have high school students who are interested in um, making a difference in the community and learning about, more about different cultures, different religions, and how we um, wrestle with conflict in a really thoughtful way, um, I think that um, coming to that event will be great. So if you go to our website, um, you'll definitely see a blog post or our Facebook page. Um, and then lastly, on January 20th, the city of Seattle is hosting a large-scale immigration event. Um, so if you type in Office of Immigrants and Refugees in Seattle, um, you'll find more information on that event. And if you want to volunteer, um, there's wonderful opportunities to volunteer um, and um, support um, these diverse communities. Wow, cool. So coming up January 15th, Youth Advocacy Day, January 16th, MLK Celebrate Day, and uh, the 20th, uh, a big immigration uh, kind of event. Is that more of a... Yeah, so it's going to involve um, it's going to involve a legal legal clinic. Um, there's also going to be a citizenship day. Kind of like a seminar day, or is it um, more of a? It's going to be active. A, oh. It's going to be active. So it's more so like a workshop. And oh, okay. so and, and so um, you know the city of Seattle and numerous community based organizations have been working on citizenship day with Seattle Metro Credit Union and a number of other financial partners. Um, and so folks are 
um, eligible for citizenship. It's an opportunity to apply and kind of get that set up. Excellent. Um, and then for folks for folks who aren't eligible for that specific program, um, but want to learn more, especially if they identify as identify as an immigrant or a refugee and want to learn more about um, what they can expect in the coming months or years. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity there. And for folks who don't don't identify as either of those parties but want to volunteer and be a part of something and tangibly um, support um, diverse communities, um, there's numerous opportunities to volunteer if, if, you, um, if you look on the City of Seattle's website. Cool. Great. Hey, thank you so much for being here. We've been talking this morning with Mozart Gruyer. He's the executive director with 21 Progress. Mozart, thanks for being here and sharing the ideas of 21 Progress and, uh, gosh, the ideas and the change you guys are future you're sort of visioning out for uh, young people. I, I really appreciate the time and the, and the work 21 Progress is doing with young people in the area. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate your time. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. Dr. Louis Aroni is an international recognized weight management expert and director of the Comprehensive Weight Control Center at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Dr. Aroni's medical career has been about working with people with weight issues, and his experience has brought him to focus on the biological factors that cause weight gain. This is so huge for any one of us struggling with weight gain, the yo-yo dieting, the fad diets. This is truly revolutionary. In Dr. Aroni's new book, The Change Your Biology Diet, The Proven Program for Lifelong Weight Loss, is a great guide to help us in the process to lose weight and be healthy. So let's meet him. Dr. Louis Aroni, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Kate. I am so excited, and I believe our listeners will be equally as excited because with your new book, Change Your Biology Diet, the proven program for lifelong weight loss, is certainly something that feels fresh and new because I think most of us have probably been frustrated with some kind of diet and have only found that in the long term we've failed. But to change your biology, this sounds like something that really has the earmark of being very successful for us. Well, Kate, as the director of the Weill Cornell Comprehensive Weight Control Center, having done this for 25 years, we've developed many strategies that work when nothing else has. So we're used to people coming in saying, I've tried everything, I've been on this program, that program, and what we've been able to do is sort things out and get them to lose weight. So when you look at the Change Your Biology Diet, it's a complete program. Not only is it the dietary advice that we give to our patients, but it includes other things that go way beyond that. For example, if you're considering, if you don't succeed, should you consider medication? Medication is being prescribed. If you want to consider medicine, which medicines? Tells you all about them. Surgery. Some people want to consider surgery. Which surgeries should you consider? And while that seems like very involved, there are people who need this, and those people need to read the Change Your Biology Diet to see what is going to be the best approach for them. 
excellent. So this really is so great because it gives us a full spectrum. It gives us the information if other diets haven't worked, but we have maybe, say, 20 pounds to lose, chances are we're going to find some approach, a different approach, because we're going to find out it has so much to do with how our body works and how that triggers our brain. That really is a big factor here. Well, that's a story that people have not heard. And again, another part of the book explaining to people why it's hard to lose weight. Why is it hard to lose weight? We've been looking for the answers, and now we have them. What happens is that when you eat fattening food and you don't exercise enough, the number of calories that get absorbed into your body too quickly is greater than it's ever been. So too many calories come in too quickly. It's almost like a power surge to the nerves in your brain. The nerves in your brain are responsible for controlling your weight get overloaded with too many calories coming in too quickly, and those nerves are injured. They're damaged. So what happens then, your fat cells, your stomach, your intestine are trying to tell your brain how much food you've eaten, how much fat you've stored, and it can't get the message. So the bottom line is that fattening food damages your brain. The whole process of gaining weight damages the nerves in the brain and you can't tell, so you don't feel full. You can eat and eat and eat more and more, you just don't feel full. And that's the thing, that's the disease of obesity that we talk about. And at the beginning, when you're 20 pounds overweight, that is reversible. But when you get heavier and heavier, we find that there's a point where it's very, very difficult to reverse and more advanced techniques are necessary. So that's something that people just have never heard. They've never realized that they're fighting something physical. So we try to do away with the blame, the shame of having a weight problem, which many people feel. We're not telling them to feel ashamed, but they feel that way because they just haven't been able to do anything about it. And they're saying to themselves, what's wrong with me? I know I should lose weight. Why don't I lose weight? And it's because they're fighting something that is physical. That is really such an eye-opener. And what I gather from what you're saying, Dr. Aroni, is that even the awareness that this has gone on with the brain, it still is something that goes on inside that we can't then say, no, I'm not going to eat that. Even though we're aware that the trigger should be kicking into place, there's somehow that we cannot really limit the intake of calories. Is that correct? That's right, Kate. So when you think about what makes you go off a diet, it's almost like trying to hold your breath, okay? Try to hold your breath, you go underwater and try to hold your breath for 10 minutes. And at some point, something tells you to jump out of the water because you're drowning. And that's similar to the impulses you get when you don't eat enough. Your body tells you you're starving to death and you wanna go out and get something to eat. And what the Change Your Biology diet is about is how you can eat in a way that settles those impulses down as easily as possible. And if that doesn't work, the other things that you can do. And this is very important because, first of all, most of the books that I've seen, they're written by somebody who lost weight. Like that's their credential is, oh, I lost weight and everybody can lose weight. That is not true. What works for one person doesn't work for another. 
And there are far more complicated reasons why people gain weight and why they can't lose weight. So, for example, another thing you've never heard is the medicine you take may be making it difficult for you to lose weight. The most common one we see are over-the-counter antihistamines and sleep remedies. So those PM products, they have an antihistamine in them called diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine can make it difficult to lose weight. We've actually cured people of their weight problems by recognizing that and changing the medicine around, and all of a sudden, boom, they start to lose weight. They're not as hungry. They're able to comply. So these are the types of things that we've talked about in the Change Your Biology Diet that are just no one has ever seen or ever heard of in any other book before. And we need to then stress that this has been the focus of your work for 25 years so that there is such great value in coming from all of that expertise. And as you continue to do the research and help people, there's just a continuing learning process that we benefit from in your work and thus now in your book. Yes. So we, our center here, I run the Comprehensive Weight Control Center at Weill Cornell Medicine here in New York City. We've been doing this since the early 1990s. We were among the first people to recognize that eating a lot of carbohydrate wasn't a good thing and that you should be eating more fat, more protein, that you should be cutting down on carbs. And we recognized that in 1991. That was completely against what everyone said. We've been using medications in novel ways and in responsible ways. And I'm one of the founders and I'm now the chairman of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. American Board of Obesity Medicine credentials doctors in the specialty of treating weight problems. It's the fastest growing specialty in medicine right now. More doctors are going to be credentialed in obesity medicine this year than in rheumatology, the joint specialty, than in endocrinology, than in infectious diseases. So we're seeing that doctors are beginning to get the message that weight is a serious problem and that if the patient can't lose weight with diet alone, that there are diagnostic approaches that can help their patients to, to lose weight. And you know, it's a complete revolution in the field going on right now. And doesn't it make sense that the focus be right here on obesity and really helping people through this because of the impact it has on all kinds of other illnesses that are the result of being so heavy? So more than 50 illnesses are the direct result of increased body weight. The one you hear about most is diabetes. So there's been an epidemic of diabetes we're seeing it in younger and younger people. We're seeing it in, in children. Recently, I, I saw in the news, Rob Kardashian gained a lot of weight. He's got adult-type diabetes. He's only 28 years old, and he has adult-type diabetes. A story we're seeing in families, that the grandfather has diabetes, developed diabetes when he was 70. The father developed it when he was 50, and now our patient is only 30. That's a, a typical story. Or even younger. We have uh, a young man, 15 years old, with adult-type diabetes, and they're even younger. And it's all the result of obesity, of an increased body weight straining the pancreas. But there are many more illnesses, like cancer. There's a, a significant increase in the risk of developing certain cancers, 
breast cancer is the one that's been most closely related with increased body weight. But the other thing, and this goes back to some of the sophisticated stuff we have in the book, the treatment for breast cancer causes weight gain. And we now recognize that. We recognize that the medicines that are used for nausea, steroids like prednisone, as well as strong antihistamines that are used to stop the side effects of chemotherapy all cause weight gain. So the situation we've run into is that the oncologists, we're here next to Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, very famous cancer hospital, we get referred patients who have breast cancer, they were started on a chemotherapy regimen and radiation, and they're gaining weight. They're gaining weight, and the doctors are telling them, don't gain weight, because it increases the risk of having cancer again. And it may be actually affecting the cancer statistics, that it gets in the way of the hormonal therapies, it gets in the way of the cancer therapy. So patients get referred to us to manage these problems. And again, this is part of a revolution that's going on in medicine. The idea that we're going to be treating cancer patients for weight problems, like that was unheard of 10 years ago. But now it's commonplace. We get referrals like that every day. So anyone out there with breast cancer who's gained weight, they think they're, they're nuts. They feel like they've lost their minds because they've gained weight. How could I gain weight? And they're, they're filled with shame because it's the doctors telling them, the nurses are telling them that don't you know that gaining weight isn't good for you? And they can't help it. So we're trying to overcome that and help them to understand what it is and how to manage it because we do this all the time. Thank goodness. It's so exciting to think that this kind of collaboration is existing because just thinking of someone going through cancer treatment, they're not trying to gain weight, but just that kind of cure, if you will, is causing another problem is such important awareness and you're right there to be assisting in the remedy, which is great. Right. So a typical story of that, and again, this is a specialized area, but many women have breast cancer woman's 125 pounds, she goes through treatment, and the next thing you know, she's 155 pounds. So she's gained 30 pounds. If you look at that, a 30-pound weight gain in a woman who who was 120 pounds is more than 20% of their body weight. I mean, that's a lot of weight gain, and there are a lot of the hormones that are produced by fat cells promote the growth of cancer cells. The hormones produced by the fat cells promote the growth of cancer damage the pancreas and cause many other illnesses. Arthritis is more common because of the inflammatory hormones that come from fat cells. And again, many, many other illnesses, 11 different cancers. So it's been our belief for a long time that if we could treat obesity effectively, you wouldn't need that five or six medicines to treat your diabetes, your high blood pressure, which is a result, your high cholesterol and triglycerides, that's a result. All these other illnesses would be significantly better if we could get weight under control. And the evidence supports that. The problem has been getting weight in control. But now we're beginning to get a handle on what's wrong. What's the problem stopping people from losing weight and how to approach that more effectively? So this is really, again, revolutionary information and the Change Your Biology Diet new book, great information, 
is here in a very readable form for us to really get this information and educate ourselves. And when it becomes at the serious level where we need more than something that we can work on ourselves, of course, now, as you're telling us, Dr. Aroni, there are the specialists. And so we're across the country from you. Are we able to find referrals on this coast of doctors who are doing the same kind of work? Yes, you can find doctors who are managing weight problems and are properly credentialed on the website of the American Board of Obesity Medicine, aboM.org, and it lists people in, in your area and every area who um, are credentialed in the field. In fact, one of the best, some of the best weight management centers in the country are in Seattle. Some of the best weight management research is going on at the University of Washington in Seattle, where many of the ideas I'm talking about today, the idea that something happens to your brain that makes it hard to lose weight, comes from the University of Washington in Seattle. So there's a lot going on in Seattle. I think it's one of the best places to be if you need to uh, lose weight. So that's excellent for anyone listening this morning to have that insight and to get over any of, you know, the the lies really that have been perpetuated that people don't have enough self-control, that they have this uh, responsibility for being overweight when you're helping us to understand that there's a lot of biology that's going on. And we haven't thought of the brain as being a big part of what affects our weight gain, but it's really important to understand that. Yes, it is. And the part that was hard to understand is, well, people are just, they're eating too much food. They're responding to the advertising they see, and they're eating fattening food, and they just don't want to stop. And we asked the question, and many people have asked the question in, in medicine, why can't they stop? Why don't people just stop eating? Why don't they just lose weight? And I told people, look, if people could just lose weight, I wouldn't have a job for 25 years doing this. But the fact is you can't. So when you think about why is that, the evidence is becoming incontrovertible. You know, when we talk about what's incontrovertible in medicine, it's that study after study shows the same thing. And now we're getting to the point where researchers at the Children's Hospital of Boston, they found something that helped the brain to sense how much fat is stored. It was able to help the brain to regain sensitivity to a key fat cell hormone. What happened? This was a study that was done in mice. The mice lose weight. They don't put them on a diet. The mice lose weight. Now, will this be a treatment in the future? I don't know. You know it's a long way before you have it as a treatment, but they proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you improve the brain sensitivity to hormones coming from the fat cells, that the weight problem went away in these mice even though they were not put on a diet. They were, were able to eat whatever they wanted. So that gives us confidence that these ideas are correct and that we are on the right track in the kinds of treatments that we're recommending. Now, it used to be that we'd use medication in certain patients who were gaining weight and where we couldn't get them to lose weight, and we weren't sure if we were treating the right part of the body or we're treating their brain, is this the right thing to do? Now what we see is the damage is in exactly that part of the brain, so it makes perfect sense to stimulate some areas. So, you know, this is sophisticated stuff. It's not something that you do at home, but I, I want people to know that there's a lot more going on 
in weight problems than meets the eye. And if you can't succeed, a book like mine, The Change Your Biology Diet, will help to give you a roadmap where to go, what do I do, how do I proceed from this point, because people just don't know. They just get frustrated, angry, they give up, and I tell patients there's no turning back. From this point, you know, you've got a problem, what are you going to do? Give up and gain more weight? We just can't do that. Exactly. And what is exciting about the book, we've talked about where weight is a very serious issue, how to deal with that, and that is an incredible gift. For anyone who's dealing with a a smaller amount of weight gain or maybe, you know, at a point that they feel they're in great shape, but there can be the age creep, a weight creep that happens after age 30, you have this breakthrough dozen that helps us to really find a good way to approach our life and eat correctly. And I think one of the key things here that you mentioned is that we really need to start our day off with protein. That's right. And this is something that a lot of people are now recognizing is the best appetite suppressant we have. So we're constantly seeing people come in and say, I can't control my eating. I'm hungry all day long. And we ask them, what are you having for breakfast? Well, I used to have a donut. I used to have a bagel. Now I'm having instant oatmeal. Well, instant oatmeal is as bad as having a donut or a bagel if you're trying to control your eating. What you have to do is switch to a protein, a protein like Greek yogurt, which has more protein than regular yogurt. And if, if it has the sugar on the bottom, you probably don't want that. Cottage cheese. I know some people have strong feelings. They don't like cottage cheese. That's fine. Protein shakes. A low-carb protein bar. A bar called the Quest Bar. You can get online. Very inexpensive. Quest Bars have very little carbohydrate in them, and they have many different flavors. You can heat them up. They taste very good. That's the kind of way to start the day with protein. Nuts are very healthy. You can have a handful of nuts for breakfast. We find that is the best appetite suppressant. But in in thinking about this problem, we looked at any given meal. Why why is it hard for people who are on a low-carb diet to control their eating when they go back on carbs? Anyone who's done this will will recognize what I'm talking about. I was on this uh, Atkins kind of diet, and I started back on maintenance, and I started adding carbs back, and all of a sudden I couldn't control how much I ate. My weight started flying up. And we've done research showing that if you have the carbs at the end of a meal, it has much less of an impact on your blood sugar. If you have the carbs at the beginning of the meal, so like having bread when you go to a restaurant, or having starting out eating a lot of rice, and then you go and have some, some uh, chicken, and then you have a couple of vegetables, that that raises blood sugar, and that tends to ultimately stimulate your appetite a couple of hours later. It also makes your body produce more insulin, which the net result is you store more calories as fat. So we did a really simple experiment. We took a, a big piece of bread and chicken and vegetables, And on one day, we gave people the bread first and the chicken and vegetables second. And on another day, we just switched it around. We gave them the chicken and vegetables first and the bread second. 
and in the patients in the study who had diabetes, on the day they had the bread first, their blood sugar peaked at 200 after one hour. On the day they had the chicken and vegetables first, their blood sugar went up very gradually. After an hour, it's only 125. After two hours, it was 140. And it took half the insulin to get a much better blood sugar. So the point is that just by changing the order, eating the exact same thing, you wind up with a much better metabolic profile. You wind up with something that will not make you hungry two or three hours after having the meal. So that's a very simple thing that almost anybody could do. And we actually just started an experiment where we looked at sandwiches. And we find that a sandwich is just as bad as eating the bread first. So the effect on blood sugar, it's exactly the same. So we recommend eat your vegetables first. Got to have vegetables to have them first. Have the vegetables first. Have your protein, whatever that is. And then at the end, if you need a carb, you have the carb at the end. And we see people just lose weight when we start doing that because they're not as hungry. They don't eat as much carb. But in our study, we made them eat the same thing. You know, that is a simple thing that anybody can do. The science is so incredible and easy to understand, as we've just listened to you, Dr. Aroni. And in the book, in this great new book, The Change Your Biology Diet, you also provide us with some recipes along with meal plans for a couple of weeks. That's right. So we've one of the things we've learned over the years is not everybody loses weight the same way. Some people want a structured plan. They want to know exactly what to eat. And we've provided them with exactly that. Other people, if you tell them what to eat, they, they're upset. So we give guidelines of what you can eat at any given meal. So there are a lot of different ways to do this. And I look at the Change Your Biology Diet as a complete program from beginning to end. It's everything that you need to help you to lose weight. And if you've been on a diet before, you've tried other things, it hasn't worked, that's what we do all the time. So we look at this book as just like coming to see us. We've tried to take all the great ideas we have at our world-renowned center, put them in this book so that your listeners at home can benefit from our 25 years of experience. And then, of course, exercise is a key thing in keeping our body in good shape. And I really appreciate your approach on that, where we just don't have to be at the gym for hours and hours a day. Yes. So we focus on exercise to improve health rather than looking at exercise as a weight loss tool. Because the fact is, it's really, really hard, maybe in some people impossible, to lose weight by exercising. So the idea you're going to join the gym and exercise your way out of your weight problem, that is just not going to happen. Unless you're Michael Phelps and you're doing 10,000 calories of exercise a day, it really is not possible to do. But is it important to get physical activity every day to give you the best possible health? And the answer is absolutely. You know, if you want to go to the gym, that's great. But a lot of people don't want to. And so the book goes into how to make your life more active in a way that won't take you hours a day. And, you know, we think that good health is what this is all about. So 
all of that is packed into this great new book, The Change Your Biology Diet, the proven program for lifelong weight loss, because it comes with all the years and years, 25 years and and continuing strong of research and uh, observation and working with patients that we benefit from. And of course, now this book is freshly available. We can get it at and through all of our favorite book sources, correct? Yes, you can. It's available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. We have a Facebook page, Dr. Lewis Aroni, that's A-R-O-N-N-E, and that gives you links to uh, all of these resources. And, And our uh, center's website, the Comprehensive Weight Control Center at Wild Cornell Medicine. Uh, you can access us through that as well. So this has been so informative. It really feels, I think, revolutionary because we've you have given us such great insights and I believe great hope. And that's what you've really seen is people been able to have hope and change by following this great plan, correct? Yes, Kate. I mean, that's that's what we do. We see people, we get have people referred from all over the country, all over the world, who have been unable to lose weight. A, a big part of our practice are people who've had surgery and they can't lose weight. They've regained all their weight after surgery. And people say, oh my God, what do you do when someone's had surgery? Well, you know, we look at it in a very objective way and we look at what the problem is and we we solve those problems. We have solutions for those problems. So if someone has had, you know, there are certain types of uh, surgeries that we find that, you know, they may need a different surgery. Uh, But it may be that they're on the wrong kind of diet. It may be that they're taking a medicine that's making them gain weight despite the fact that they've had surgery. These are the kinds of things that you need a doctor to to investigate, but it's not that there's no hope. We never give up when when it comes to this. We never tell someone, look, there's nothing we can do. There's always something that we can do to to get a result. That is so terrific. You are such an inspiration, and you have really given us such a great gift this morning with giving us insights, Dr. Aroni, and certainly the book, The Change Your Biology Diet, is a resource that we can turn to so regularly, and check out your Facebook page to get even more contacts. So that's wonderful. Thank you so greatly for the work that you've done, and I do appreciate your taking time with us this morning. Kate, thanks very much for having me on.